0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And once again, I would like to begin by thanking some of our fellow Saloners who have either made donations to the salon or who have paid for a copy of my Pay What You Can novel, the audiobook version of the Genesis Generation. And these wonderful people are John C., Timothy F., John S., Melissa S., Eric B., U and M., Fred S., And Jeremy S., who not only made a significant donation to the salon, but did it with an interesting number. Uh, Very clever, Jeremy. And the last donor I'd like to thank this week is Diana Slattery, who, as you know, has already contributed significantly to the salon by sending me a big box of Terrence McKenna recordings, which included the two recent podcasts of some of his earliest recordings, among many others that she sent. And while Diana has never asked me to mention it, uh, her work not only includes the creation of an entirely new language called Glide, she has uh, featured it in her novel, The Maze Game, which has been called a work of genius and compared to work by Nabokov, Echo, Foucault, and Pynchon, just to mention a few of my favorite authors. And I'll put a link to it in the program notes for today's podcast in case you'd like to check it out. So, again, thank you one and all for your continuing support of these podcasts. Now, today I'm going to play another recording from the Timothy Leary Archive that I received through the good graces of Dennis Berry and Bruce Stamer. And the one I've selected is a debate that was recorded on October 23rd, 1990, and it was held between Dr. Leary and a person I consider one of the all-time over-the-top assholes of America, G. Gordon Liddy. As you may recall, it was Liddy who orchestrated the infamous Watergate break-in that eventually led to the downfall of another arch-villain of American history, Richard Nixon, the father of the war on drugs. I think that it was about a year ago when I played another Timothy Leary talk in which he very amusingly pointed out that Liddy's only claim to fame before Nixon hired him was that he raided Leary's compound at Millbrook and got a lot of publicity for doing so. Otherwise, Nixon probably never would have heard of that smarmy little jerk who eventually did him in, and I guess that bringing Nixon down is at least one thing Liddy did to make up for being such a fascist jerk. Now if you fast forward about 25 years after Liddy's break in of Leary's bedroom, We come to 1990, and now have Leary and Liddy debating one another on college campuses in a somewhat carnival atmosphere, but on a speaking circuit that earned them both a tidy sum. Personally, I really don't understand why Leary lowered himself to participate in these debates, but I guess that when you don't have much money, you'll do most anything to make ends meet. Anyway, as you're about to hear, they actually did provide an entertaining evening of stimulating thought. But I should tell you first that uh, around 47 minutes into this recording, there was a break. And my guess is that the cassette tape ran out. So when the recording picked up again, Dr. Leary was already in mid-sentence during the question and answer session. So we probably missed a bit of this talk, but I think you're going to enjoy it anyway. Now let's travel back in time to the evening of October 23, 1990 at Penn State University and hear a little bit about the differences between a proponent of personal responsibility, Dr. Timothy Leary, versus the proponent of state control of the individual, the notorious G. Gordon Liddy. Mr. Leary believes that
1: the individual is sacred and must be protected from the bureaucracy, government, and law enforcement agencies in order to be free. Before we get started tonight, I'd like to introduce one of our guests, Dr. Timothy Leary, in 1959... Dr. Leary was appointed to the faculty of Harvard University, and for three years, he was the director of the Harvard Psychedelic Research Project. The project project was a clinical study of the effects of psychedelic drugs. Until 1966, LSD was legal in the United States. After After being dismissed from Harvard in 1963, Dr. Leary established a research center in Millbrook, New York, and it became a beacon for the leaders of a new generation. It was Dr. Leary who coined the phrase, turn on, tune in, and drop out. In 1970, Dr. Leary was imprisoned and charged with the possession of half an ounce of marijuana. He narrowly escaped prison and was later granted political asylum in Algeria and Switzerland. Eventually was captured in Afghanistan by DEA agents and extradited back to the United States. Mr. Leary, Mr. Leary was paroled in 1976. Please join with me in welcoming Dr. Timothy Leary. Our next guest tonight Our next guest tonight is a supporter of the power of government. Mr. Liddy was a uh, law review graduate and he holds a doctorate from Fordham University in law. He became, at age 29, the youngest supervisor at the FBI National Headquarters. After serving with the FBI, Mr. Liddy practiced international law and then served as as an assistant district attorney. His name became well-known outside of political and law circles when he led two raids on the headquarters of Dr. Timothy Leary, leader of the 60s psychedelic movement. Dr. Liddy lost the 1968 Republican Congressional Primary in New York's 28th District. He then took command of Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. When Nixon won, he was appointed to various university uh, and Nixon administration positions. He then became general counsel to re-elect the president in 1972, and the rest, as they say, is history. Mr. Liddy was sentenced to 21 years in maximum security prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. President Carter released Mr. Liddy from prison in the interests of justice. Please join colloquy in welcoming Dr. G. Gordon Liddy.
2: to make sure I can keep the room covered here.
1: (laughs) Tonight's debate is going to include a question and answer period, but first we will start with G. Gordon Liddy, who will address you to begin with, and then Dr. Leary will address the audience after that.
2: I won the coin toss about going first, but... Tim Leary and I, as you're going to find out right from the beginning, don't even agree on the facts and circumstances surrounding our first meeting. And I think probably we better clear that up because we were arguing about that just inside here again. So, Tim, why don't you just start off this evening by just telling them how we first met, or your version of it, as best you can remember it under the circumstances. (laughs)
3: I first met uh, G. Gordon Liddy, I think, <laughs> in the spring of 1967. At that time, uh, I was living in a large estate in, near Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, we had formed there something called the, uh, I think it was called the uh, Castalia Foundation, and we'd assembled there a group of psychologists, philosophers, uh, doctors. And various uh, artists and poets, and we were conducting um, very diligently researches in altered states of consciousness. Um, I must say uh, that this was not a very exciting, lurid organization. We were most uh, most of us middle-aged, uh, professorial or academic people. Uh, we were publishing a. A well known academic scholarly journal. Um, we were writing articles, we were uh, giving lectures, and we were performing controlled studies. Indeed, our center at Millbrook, New York, at that particular time in world history, had become the uh, world focus or center of this discipline of the careful study. Of altered states of consciousness, a discipline which goes back for thousands of years, which has appeared in every high civilization in world history, and uh, as an unbroken string of um, of, uh, of visionary poets, mystics, uh, philosophers. Uh, uh, basically, you're talking about the the central thread of human philosophy. However, in the spring of 1967, it came to our attention via a network of many informants that there was in the county seat of Poughkeepsie a very ambitious young district attorney, a man who burned with zeal and fervor and fanatic desire to defend the American way as he saw it and to stamp out uh, sin and evil. We learned that this uh, man was going to lead a raid upon our scientific scholarly center. Now, it might occur uh, at the first uh, blush that this is uh, unusual, that cops would be busting a center where conscious alteration and visionary uh, philosophy was being studied, but I'm sure your knowledge of history, being well-educated Penn State students, I'm sure you know that throughout human history, the issue we're going to debate tonight has always been a central concern of uh, of human society. There are people who want to look within, who want to expand, who want to push the frontiers of human knowledge out, and there are those who want to keep the status quo. Okay, the raid was supposed to happen on a Saturday night. uh, At the time, LSD was legal nationally, but because of a local option, was illegal um, in the state of New York. So we told everyone, if you have any illegal drugs, stash them outside in the bushes, and uh, we sat down on a Saturday night to wait for the Keystone cops to raid us. (laughs) Well, we heard reports they got lost in the bushes, they went to the wrong place, Uh, police cars were wandering around this large estate, Uh, obviously it was the typical uh, (laughs) military police organization. And about midnight, uh, we gave up and went to bed. Uh, my wife and I were just settling our brains for a long springtime nap when all of a sudden in the hallway outside the door we heard a clatter and rumble of of feet. Uh, the door of our room was rudely pushed open. And there, leading a band of guerrilla terrorists <laughs> dressed in the uniforms of the Local deputy sheriffs, booted, armed, helmet—they're leading this band of midnight raiders. Is that Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau? (laughs) G. Gordon Liddy, with great command and uh, hard-line presence, looked around my bedroom, saw a pot by the uh, fireplace, picked it up, found some brown vegetable substance, and put me under arrest. uh, for what turned out to be possession of peat moss. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> Cops never made a mistake, and military people never made a mistake, so there are all sorts of reasons given why the case was thrown out of court. Actually, the case was a laughingstock in New York State. It was called the case of the missing marijuana, or the invisible marijuana, I must say, though, Mr. Liddy is relentless and indomitable in his uh, pursuit of justice as he sees it, and he continued uh, to make uh, raids on our headquarters and harassed us and hassled us so much that we realized that this was no place for a civilized American to live. So we uh, moved out of uh, New York State and moved to California, a, a, a migration for which I'll always be grateful to Mr. Liddy. Mr. Liddy, however, Uh, as a result of his uh, exploits or probably because they wanted to get him out of the county was transferred to Washington, D.C. and joined the Nixon White House where he led other midnight raids of dubious legality (laughs) and equal inefficiency. Uh... I will now uh, allow Mr. Reedy to give you his uh, distorted version of these events.
2: Well, as you're about to see, Tim and I really don't agree on just about anything in this world, and that certainly does include the fact and circumstances surrounding our first meeting. There are elements of truth in there, and at no time... Uh, Would I suggest that Tim was lying to you about it? His condition that evening was not conducive to being able to remember very much. But here's the situation we found ourselves in. We kept getting reports from the 64-room mansion and this several thousand-acre estate in Dutchess County that Tim and his cohort were occupying that they were distributing and using controlled dangerous substances out there. We've managed to get sufficient people in to be able to go before a judge and get a search warrant. But we had a problem, a legal problem, in the execution of the search warrant. If you go to a hotel, say this is a 64-room hotel, and you search it and you find some contraband in room 39 you know whom to charge with possession of that contraband in room 39 because one there is a number on the door two there's a register downstairs it says who's in there but of course in Tim Leary's establishment there were no numbers on the doors there were no registers downstairs Uh, this scientific laboratory this group of middle aged scholars included persons of all ages including little children and babies there were quite a few goats wandering in and out some of whom may or may not have had laxative administered to them I don't know but they never cleaned up behind them and in any event it was a pretty weird setup there and so what we decided to do is we would wait until they went to bed so that we could sneak in the front they never left the, the door locked and go up this massive Staircase it was something like the one that uh, Clark Cable took. Uh, what was her name? What was her name? Vivian Lee up, you know, and going with the wind. And we were going to trap everybody in his or her rooms, and then we would know if we found anything whom to charge. So we waited for them to go to bed. Now, what they were doing before they went to bed, they were in a place that I think originally was a dining room, and they had a motion picture, projector and screen in there and for several hours they ran a movie of a waterfall this waterfall was colored by having a little can with a light bulb in it revolving and various colored lights so that it was a multicolored variegated waterfall while the water fell for several hours they smoked something. The place was full of smoke. At any rate, they finally staggered off to bed. And that was when we decided, all right, now we'll go in and trap them in the rooms by sneaking up the stairs. We had 12 helmeted and booted deputy sheriffs. And that night I learned something important. Twelve helmeted and booted deputy sheriffs cannot sneak. You know, we started up the stairs, and those guys made so much noise behind me that everybody started coming out of the rooms, which of course was not the plan, led by his eminence, the chief scholar, Dr. Leary. He He was wearing a Hathaway shirt, period. And my first view of the doctor as I went up the steep stairs and he came down was spectacular at least. I mean, there he was. We... Of course, searched the premises, we found lots of things, peat moss and other things too, but we also found LSD, I think some psilocybin and some marijuana and what have you, and so they were arrested. And the trial was funny because the defense rested on two things. One was the fact that in the interval, the Supreme Court of the United States had uh, decided the case called Miranda versus Arizona, And they were attacking the warnings that we gave to people when we arrested them, and it ultimately fell on that ground. But their chief reliance was that this was part of their religion, and this was their religious practice and experience. And in order to establish that, in order to establish that, they had a series of so-called expert witnesses. There must have been 20 of them. They were all swamis of one kind or another with the turbans and the crystal balls and all this stuff. And I'll never forget the judge jumping up and down saying, you know, you bring one more swami in here and I'm going to hold you all in contempt. At any event, as I said, the, the case failed on the basis of Miranda versus Arizona, but then we raided them again, and this time we got them and they made a deal, you know. You leave Dutchess County and we will stop busting you. And that's really what happened. And he did indeed go off to California, for which he is very grateful, but for which California has never forgiven me. Now, at this point, inasmuch as I won the coin toss, we will start the debate. What we're talking about here, and when I say we, I mean specifically to include you, because in the question-and-answer period, we are going to solicit your questions and your views, and you may ask either one of us or both of us, and we'll get into a three-way conversation on this. But there is a natural tension between individual rights and the claims upon us that the state has. But I think it's probably best... To first examine the understructure of this whole concept of having a state. You know, why do we even have one? You've got two chief theories abroad in the world today about the nature of man. The first is held by individualists. They say that the only ontological reality is that of the human individual and that to the extent that communities or societies have any reality at all, which is dubious in their mind. It's just a gathering together of individuals for the self-ordained purposes of the rational animal. Now the opposite view is held by the collectivists, most particularly the Marxists. Unless you think that that is no longer relevant because of what is going on in the Soviet Union, I would point out to you that the largest in terms of population nation on the face of this earth, China, is Marxist. So is most of Central Africa, Cuba, Gaiman, North Korea, and the English Lit Departments at Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. Now, the collectivists believe there is no individual ontological reality at all. As far as they're concerned, the only reality is that of society, and society's nature is completely determined at any given time by the means of production currently in use. Now, if you simply use your common sense and powers of observation, you're going to find out that they are both wrong. You look around you, you are going to see a world filled with individuals. Tall ones, short ones, fat ones, thin ones, black ones, white ones, yellow ones, red ones, smart ones, stupid ones, etc. But you may have observed something about the human individual in contrast to the lesser animals, and that is that we the humans lack the individual weaponry, say, of the fang and the claw or protective coloration and things of that sort in order to be able, by ourselves, to realize our individual existential human ends. We cannot do that by ourselves unless we have mutual supplementation and cooperation among us. We cannot create such vastly different things as say an armed forces on the one hand and a ballet on the other, a healthcare delivery system, a road system, police departments, garbage collection, anything. None of those things are achievable by ourselves. And so the ineluctable conclusion one comes to is that man has an equally viable, equally ontological real dual nature. Now, that being the case, you can recognize that there is a distinction between morality on the one hand and law on the other. Indeed, they are intrinsically different. If you confuse them in your minds, you get into a lot of trouble. You can't resolve any kinds of arguments or disputes. If you were the only individual on the face of this earth, what need would you have for a law? Who is to be controlled? There's only you. But you would still have your morality. That's your relationship with your maker. The study of morality, the academic discipline, is called ethics. The study of law, the academic discipline, is called jurisprudence. Different because they arise from the different sides of mankind's nature. When one goes over to the social side is where one finds laws, because a law is defined as an order of society liable to enforcement that gives certain powers of control over individuals and groups of individuals, communities. And it is also from our social nature that we derive rights. A right is the power to have or to claim something free of the unreasonable interference of someone else. It's a sphere of autonomy with the power to act. And no right is ever limitless. Indeed, all rights are intrinsically limited. I'll give you a common example. My right to worship God the way I see fit never extends to coercing anyone else into worshiping God as I see fit rather than they do. Limited. Now, the common good is that state of affairs, if you will, which makes it possible for all of the individuals to combine through mutual cooperation and supplementation to achieve the human existential ends. And that common good, because it subsumes in itself as a whole the individual good, transcends the individual goods, and has a superior claim thus in times of war when the nation is in danger they can have a draft which is involuntary servitude which is specifically prohibited by the constitution and yet you can have one because of the superior claim of the common good so there's the undergirding of why we even have a state then we can get into a discussion Well, reasonable men can certainly differ as to the nature that state ought to take, totalitarian, democratic, republic, etc. And there, I think, is chiefly where my opponent and I disagree. He, of course, can speak for himself. It's my view that as messy and as sloppy as it is oftentimes in practice, the system that was set up by our founding fathers is a superior one. They broke up our system of government into three parts. One group representing the people through direct election to create laws. The executive to carry them out. And where the inevitable conflicts come, which is what we're going to be debating here today, of course there's going to be conflicts. You had the judiciary, to sort of act as an umpire and an interpreter to sort it out and to be able to achieve a final solution of a difference. Now that was an excellent system, and indeed there was an ingenious one because with respect to the creation of laws in the legislature, the founding fathers wanted to have it both ways. They wanted institutional memory and continuity, but they also wanted constant influx of fresh blood and new ideas. Their solution was a bicameral legislature with the stability of the Senate, six-year term, and never any more than only one-third of that body up for re-election at the same time, thus the continuity and the institutional memory. In the House of Representatives, constant fresh-blood new ideas, every single one of them up for re-election every two years. That was the idea, and that was the way, in the beginning, it worked, and it worked Magnificently well. In George Washington's day when the by-elections, 40% of the House of Representatives used to be wiped out. Now, 99% are re-elected. You can't get them out of there with a howitzer. Why? Because over the years, slowly, it's an accretion process. It's not a big conspiracy or anything else. It was an accretive process. They loaded the dice in their favor. Against any challenger. And the load kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Until finally, you have a situation where you no longer have a House of Representatives. You now have that from which the colonialists fled from Europe, a House of Lords. And if you don't think that they're a House of Lords, look at the way they behave. They pass laws to govern the conduct of every single one of us, but not any one of them. I want to give you some examples. Civil Rights Act of 1964, generally attributed right now as to be one of the great laws ever passed, does not apply to the Congress of the United States. They exempted themselves. Minimum wage law applies to you and me and everyone else, not to the Congress. Fair Labor Standards Act does not apply to the Congress only to you and me age discrimination laws applies to us but not to the Congress OSHA applies to us not the Congress all of these things do not apply to the Congress only to us so where does that leave us what it leaves us with is an absence of accountability the system that was set up by the Founding Fathers is that we are their boss. They are accountable to us for what they do, supposedly. Only now they're not, because they no longer need fear, failure to be reelected. They're set in concrete, so they don't really care what you think. Thus they are contemptuous of you. There's the problem, and that is the genesis of the movements in places like California and Colorado, other places to limit their terms or indeed of an even more powerful grassroots unit movement, to just fire everybody next general election doesn't make any difference whether they're Democrats or Republicans the reason for that is that one thing you can be sure of whoever comes in as a result of the action of the people firing everybody in the Congress is those people will fear you they will respect you, they will listen to you and you'll once again have a House of Representatives instead of a House of Lords. Those are the kinds of things that we should be discussing and debating. These are issues that you can act upon within weeks now. And so I'm very heartened by the fact that so many of you are here, because it's clear that you care. Because what these people do down there, these people who are no longer accountable to you in passing these laws that apply to you and not to themselves, will run your lives. And your lives are just beginning. And they've already got a shackle on you. And so you should come here and listen and partake and participate this evening. But you shouldn't stop at that. You should participate in the political process. Because if you don't, then no one's going to listen to you when you complain. And you'll really have no right to complain, because it'll be your fault. Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: I have come to know Gordon Liddy pretty well. Uh, Midnight raids and uh, evening debates. I think I should point out something that I've learned about Mr. Liddy that uh, you may not know. Number one, Mr. Liddy is a lawyer. Now, he's a well-trained lawyer. Mr. Liddy is a very articulate and well-educated man. He was trained by the Jesuits. Uh, in uh, such skills as rhetoric I want to tell you if you're ever if you're ever in trouble and you're really guilty as hell and you need a lawyer hire Liddy uh, now to a lawyer or to a partisan and Gordon Lee is a partisan party member there's no scientific evidence uh, of this sort are designed to get you to do what the party wants you to do uh, there's something called need to know so that um, what mr. Liddy gives you is the current up-to-date right off the hot grape line scoop on what the hardline right-wing Nuts who run this country want you to believe. Now, let me give you an example. You notice that, Mr. Letty said, back in the 60s, the Supreme Court, in its stupid wisdom, saw fit to uh, rule on something called Miranda versus Arizona. Now, what that, that case was about was, it said that police... Have no right to grill, cross-examine, question suspects without warning them of their rights. That protects police from uh, brutalizing or extracting confessions from uh, uneducated or frightened or uh, ill-advised arrestees. I mean, if there's any issue of common sense in a democracy with any pretense of civil rights. You have to have some check on the power of the police in that back room of the station house when they've got some poor, scared, uneducated, probably guilty, maybe not, person, and they start questioning him and waving uh, uh, instruments of uh, pain in front of him. But the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of Miranda against Arizona, of course, was taking power away from whom? from the cops from the central government now you may not remember it but during the uh, during the 60s the Supreme Court, Mr. Liddy and his right wing uh, ding, ring, ding nut fanatics They were attacking the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. Court. Why? Because the Supreme Court was standing up in a series of issues, of civil rights, of racial uh, uh, equality, of uh, equality for the sexes. I mean, there was a glorious uh, uh, Supreme Court then defending the rights of the individual. Now, in glorious 1990, you notice uh, Mr. Liddy is not criticizing the Supreme Court today because the Supreme Court now has been packed by really fanatic right-wing Republicans. Are you are you cheering for them? <laughs> yes, you are. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Good. But I want to point out to you all this bullshit that Reagan told us about. We're going to get the central government power, you know, out of our off our back. Every single uh, decision by the Reagan Bush Supreme Court has come down on the side of the government against the individual, or the big against the small, and has consistently eroded our civil rights. So. The Supreme Court is no longer the object of derision because the Supreme Court now is against the individual. Now the only, only um, uh, obstacle to the uh, authoritarian right-wing running in this country is Congress. Now before I uh, re- refer to Mr. Liddy's advice that you should uh, try to vote out the incumbent, let me point out to you a, some flaws and, and rhetorical devices in Mr. Liddy's uh, long lecture on morals and jurisprudence. prudence. at uh, least said that they're the individualists, see, like me, fuzzy-headed people that don't believe in any uh, state at all, anarchists, and that sort of shit. <laughs> on the other side you have the Marxists, you know, who, uh, well, that's not true. On the other side, it is true you have the individualists, uh, on the other side you have the authoritarians, the authoritarians. Now, Mr. Liddy, I hope you can prove to us that you're not an authoritarian, uh, but I want to tell you, I'm not a raving individualist. I believe in rules. I believe in uh, laws. I believe three strikes you're out, four balls you walk. Uh, I stop at red lights, believe it or not. <laughs> I believe in team play. I, a I, uh, matter of fact, uh, I, uh, I, I believe uh, we, we need a military. We need a police. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, the first four years of my life, I was brought up on military reservations. I know a lot about the military. I went to West Point one time for a year and a half till I saw what the fuck that was all about. <laughs> I was I was a volunteer for military service in World War II, and I served five years. Matter of fact, I. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to bragging rights here, um, uh, Mr. Lady served more time in prison than I did. <laughs> I'll give him that. But I served more time in the military than he did. Matter of fact, uh, when I was honorably discharged after five years of service, I was given the victory pin, and I several times won grape leaf clusters on my good conduct medal. Uh, I learned something. Now, what, I believe in the military, but I believe in the basic American tradition that we do not want a military caste. We do not want an entrenched career military. The wonderful thing about America has always been that uh, when a war breaks out, we can call upon civilians to, uh, to, uh, to rush to the defense of our country. And I did that in the World War II, and I do it again if our country is, is obviously threatened. The problem was, though, that during World War II, Oh, by the way, they'll tell you, see, the terrible thing about World War II is, for many people that were in it, it was the greatest buzz, hit, flash they've ever had in their life. And people uh, like uh, George Bush and uh, a lot of these uh, old-time uh, World War II warriors, they never got over it. That was their moment of real glory. Uh, they'll tell you that uh, they'll always bring up World War II. Well, Vietnam was like World War II, and now Noriega is like World War II. Noriega is Hitler. Now we got a new Hitler over there in, in uh, Saddam. Uh, they're always if you give if you give in to Noriega, that's Munich all over again, huh? <laughs> and uh, I, I I do believe in a military, but I want to point out to you, you probably don't realize this, but. World War II was not won by a professional military officer cast. I was at West Point in uh, 39 and 40 when the war was just breaking out. I want to tell you, uh, all those peacetime military people, they had yellow gloves and cavalry cavalry sabers. World War II was won by G.I. Joe and G.I. Jane who were drafted and went in and gave up their jobs and fought for three or four or five years. And the minute the war was over, went back home and uh, continued civilian life. That's the American tradition, but unfortunately, a, uh, a military caste developed after World War II. They had the Cold War, and for forty years we had the Cold War. Then, when the Cold War ended, uh, Jesus Christ, we had to have some reason. For, we had to have a devil. We gotta have some, yeah. The uh, um, Grenada, no, that's not going gonna uh, Noriega, hey, that's great. Noriega was threatening the American way of life. Uh, well, uh, then, uh, oh yeah, the war on drugs. The worst scourge, cancer, evil ever faced by the civilization, is marijuana. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I'm not rambling here. <laughs> I was talking about uh, I was talking about this uh, the the issue of uh, Mr. Lady going after Congress right now. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, I. I do ramble, no question of it. I'll probably ramble tonight. And one of the reasons is that I don't have, see, one point of view. I don't have one party line. My job tonight and my job for the last 40 years has been to encourage you and to empower you to think for yourself and to question authority. Now, that puts me at a disadvantage when I'm dealing with a tough-minded, hard-liner, authoritarian like Mr. Liddy. He's got the fucking answers to everything. And I don't. My job is to, uh, to, to question Mr. Liddy and to question the, uh, the nutcases running around the White House and to uh, remind you that the... The basic tradition and the basic duty of an American citizen is to stand up and question authority. That's the tradition we inherited from Jefferson and Franklin and Thoreau and that long line of, of, uh, of uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy Americans that thumb their nose at authority. That's what the world loves about America, the, pl- the fact that we can stand up and uh, question authority. All right, to go back to Mr. Liddy and his advice to you. Mr. Liddy tells you, you've got to vote. And when you vote, you got to vote against the incumbent. What does that mean? Well, the problem, you see, that, the, uh, that Bush is having is that uh, Congress is democratic. Get it? So what, Mr. No Shit Sherlock? <laughs> he wants us to vote Republican. Well, what is new? I mean, is the Pope an Arab? I mean, really? My advice to you, I, I agree, I must say I agree with Mr. Liddy, uh, that uh, politicians, both Democratic and Republican, are absolutely corrupt and in power just for themselves. Isn't that the lesson of the glorious revolutions of the of the 1980s? Uh, doesn't everyone in the Soviet Union and East Europe know? That, uh, doesn't every, every individual in the world with more than two fingers of the planet know? That every political power and every politician has only one aim, to keep their butt in office at the expense of the common good? Now, Mr. Liddy, uh, you remember, uh, said that the the rights of the individual must be suspended, boys and girls, (laughs) when the common good, the common good, well... um, as I've said to you, I believe in groups, I believe in uh, organizations, I believe in, um, in democracy, but uh, this thing about the common good, uh, I'm rather skeptical about it. You see, the way this country started, 1776, uh, it, was a, it was a democracy in which uh, you'd send to Washington a representative uh, of, your, uh, of your village or your city or your county or your, your senator for your state. Now, in those days, you, you knew who your, your candidates were. You'd meet them at the town hall. They'd go around in their buggies, and you'd know who they were. And uh, you'd, it took like two weeks to send them to Washington by horse, so they'd go there, and they'd come back. And uh, uh, that's where democracy worked. Obviously, today, democracy does not work, because democracy now, obviously, uh, works for him who controls the press and the boob tube. Uh, My advice to you is number one, don't rely on politicians to solve your problems. Number two, uh, work to the fullest of your power to decentralize and to take power away from the central government in Washington. Bring it back to the villages, to the cities, to the neighborhoods. Uh, As far as this election is concerned, I urge you, don't vote for either a Democrat or a Republican. It just encourages the bastards. (laughs) I want to point out that in the last three elections, uh, Reagan, Reagan, and Bush, the majority did not vote for... Matter of fact, in the last three elections, more than 50% of the eligible voting constituency voted for none of the above. Nobody won the last three elections. Uh, Mr. Reagan uh, twice won with uh, majorities of about 26 or 26 and 27 percent of the eligible voters. And uh, Carter, Bush, and what was his name, Dukakis, uh, got about uh, 22 percent. The obvious lesson is there. People didn't want either one of those. To, in politics, scum rises to the top. Let me say it again. In politics, mediocrity rises to the top. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the vote, uh, voting the ballot box in, uh, in uh, the primaries and uh, in the November election. Uh, I'm a registered libertarian, and I'd probably vote for the libertarian candidate. Or uh, if you don't want to do that, vote for yourself or vote for, uh, for John Lennon. But you can go. The more... <laughs> The more people that go and vote for none of the above, there's is a, is a lesson there. The lesson, uh, Mr. Lee says, uh, if you don't vote, which means if you don't vote Republican, you're going to have to complain. Well, I don't think so. Um, the uh, the answer is to give less and less importance and power to the central government. Now, I've mentioned the uh, tendency and the part of the... Hardline right wing group, which is running this country for the last 10 years, I want to point out number one, in the last 10 years, the Bush Reagan clique regime has looted more money from the American people than all the crooked regimes in history, going back to Attila the Hun. The Marquises are petty, petty people compared to what's going on. With the, the, the blatant greed, the corruption, uh, the fraud, the SNL uh, um, uh, loans. Every one of you, every one of this country, they say, it's going to take $5,000 of my money and your money to repay these people. I mean, that money just didn't go down, a, you know. A, a drain. It went to the hands of people who were making those deals, mostly Republicans, some Democrats. We not not only have Neil Bush involved, we got the other son of Bush involved. I mean, this money was was looted by cynical... Um, uh, how about Wall Street? How about Wall Street? The, uh, how about the, this, this current practice of just coming in, taking a, a, a hard-working, productive company and uh, and, gra- and buying it, the uh, stock majority, and, then, and looting it and then turning it back to the uh, workers? I mean, uh, uh, the debt, the national debt. Boys and girls, you know, you've watched the... Um, Voodoo economics of the Bush-Reagan administration for the last 10 years, uh, running up this enormous debt. We're now the largest borrower, uh, beggar country in the world, and you know who's going to pay back that debt? Long after Ronnie Reagan is just a memory, you and your children are going to be paying back that debt for the biggest narcotic money dope scam in history, the Bush-Reagan administration. God, whatever you call her, I uh, deliberately use the female. Number one, because it drives right-wingers crazy. (laughs) And uh, number two, because I I do seriously believe that uh, women... uh, I I would say vote only for a woman. Why? Because the men have certainly fucked it up for 25,000 years. And uh, I'll tell you one other thing. The reason that Gordon would never say... Uh, humankind uh, he still uses the word like manhole <laughs> and salesman because Gordon doesn't want to appear to be a wimp he wants you male machos out there to know that he's a male macho too he's not going to give in to liberals like us that want him to change uh, words to bring in the smarter half of the human race just as uh, what, we,
2: what we call in debating a point of personal privilege With respect to, uh, you know, the the politics of it, all I can say, it might surprise my distinguished opponent to learn that if I could pick anyone to be President of the United States tomorrow, I would pick Margaret Thatcher, who's got more balls than any of them.
1: Our next question is for both Mr. Liddy and Mr. Leary. Mr. Leary will respond first. Mr. Leary made a, a very effective point when you were talking about the individual's rights to make decisions in their own lives and to decide whether or not
3: drugs are for them. My question for you and both, Mr. Liddy, is that
1: don't you think that society has a right as well that transcends the individual's rights when minority communities are becoming culturally
3: devastated by the effects of drugs, when babies do not have a choice and are born addicted to drugs? and when others are affected by the actions of those people
1: who have brought themselves down into the depths, into the clutches of drugs.
3: Number one, the cause of cocaine crack babies is due to the total neglect of the inner city by the Republican administrations. If you had... uh, Right-wingers and born-again Christians get very upset about fetuses and, and the babies. But uh, how about the adults? Number two, uh, the, the, the rumors and the lies about uh, drug devastation uh, in the inner city are exaggerated. Uh, c- c- cocaine deaths, there are about 3,000 cocaine deaths a year. There are fifty to 100,000 alcohol deaths, about close to a quarter uh, quart of a million um, nicotine deaths and deaths due to marijuana. Deaths due to marijuana. In, in, in 20, yeah, there, there have been 25 deaths due to marijuana in the last 25,000 years. And those are caused by, in other words, uh, you, you're, just, you're just waving the flag. Naturally, you come in and you wave the flag of oh, the babies, the babies, the babies. Well, if you care about the babies, uh, putting pot smokers in jail ain't the way to do it. And I'll tell you this, look what happened in the 60s and the 70s. In 1976, we had uh, a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. Marijuana was legalized in 14 states. Uh, during the Carter years, there was, uh, the, the inner city had a sense of hope because Carter, the black people in this country knew that Carter was on their side. In every way possible, we had a country that was unified in race. And the first thing that Reagan did when he came in was to cut, uh, cut down the minority groups. And uh, by the way, you know now because of the the Republican uh, platform on drugs they've made marijuana hard to get I can hardly get marijuana I mean today I mean marijuana in Beverly Hills costs 500 fucking dollars an ounce it used to cost 30 dollars an ounce but you can get crack for 10 dollars in any city in the country Mr. Liddy do you have any response to the last question?
2: My response, of course, is that I agree with, the, uh, with what the young man said. But the the situation, just, just so you understand the, the situation with respect to uh, crack and other cocaine being more available and, and marijuana, the, the persons who import it have a problem. Cocaine is a very concentrated, valuable thing. It's sort of like bringing in diamonds. You can get high value in small volume. It's much easier to smuggle. When you have marijuana, you know, you've got the practical equivalent of bales of hay, and it's a lot more difficult for them to smuggle it in. There's the the difference for you.
1: Our next question? I I had wanted to direct my question to, uh, to both of the gentlemen in a
3: slightly different way, but Mr. Leary has already more or less answered the first one because I was going to ask whether he felt
1: any degree of responsibility for the the havoc and the devastation and the, the loss of lives in the in primarily in the inner city due to drugs. But he's so detached from reality that he doesn't even acknowledge that it
3: exists. So, so I instead I'll address the second part of my question to Mr. Liddy and ask him in the same vein whether his disregard for the Constitution that he waxed so eloquent before us uh, this evening about uh, during the Watergate scandal
1: might any in any way be responsible for the widespread disregard for constitutional values and uh, for, for authority that he obviously believes in. Mr. Liddy?
2: One of the things that one does in this uh, great country of ours is that if you believe in something strongly enough, you are not at all at loathe to break a law for it for example you have people who will violate the law by chaining themselves to the gates of the embassy of South Africa and things of that sort we have people during the civil rights movement days who would be arrested and so forth and every one of them when they were caught paid whatever the penalty was because they knew that that was part of it and I certainly paid it and was part of it and you don't hear me up here playing the violin for having had to go into prison it's really an old long-standing American tradition with respect to uh, with respect to the uh, the situation with drugs if you believe as some people do that, that it is a part of your religion some of the American Indian tribes take psilocybin and you get locked up you get locked up you know, there's, there's no problem with that what, what I have a problem with are the people who get the people who start to snivel when they get locked up for breaking the law. One one can have respect for someone who will break the law for some purposes that he believes in. One does not have respect for people who break the law and then snivel at whatever the consequences may be.
3: Uh, It's about 9.30 and the time has come. What we're going to do is uh, I'm going to make a closing statement, and then Mr. Liddy will, and then I'll be around here if anyone has uh, individual questions. By the way, I've mentioned uh, to you that uh, I'm working with new, uh, very inexpensive computer programs for education. If any of you are interested in knowing more about this uh, or want to get on my mailing list, you can put your name and address on a piece of paper and bring it up to this corner of the stage. Now, at this moment, I'd like to thank the the, uh, colloquy group that invited us here. Uh, I want to tell you, this is the kind of audience, I, I think I can speak for Mr. Lee that Mr. Liddy and I like. It's, it's, uh, it's impassioned, you're certainly alert, and you're certainly alive, and we thank you for your participation in making uh, this a lot, of, a lot of noise tonight. Uh, I, I don't... Uh, I don't want to get uh, misty-eyed here, but I believe this is what America is about—the town hall meeting, people coming together, uh, expressing opinions noisily. We, I want you to be irritated at what I say. I want to, to leave you thinking. and you know, Mr. Liddy joins me in that. Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming, and uh, stay free. Okay. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: And unfortunately, that's where the tape ended. So, we don't get to hear their closing comments. However, to tell you the truth, I've already heard about as much from Liddy as I care to. You know, I really have to hand it to Dr. Leary for being such an enlightened being that he could be so civilized in the presence of that jerk-off Liddy Personally, I wouldn't walk across the street to spit on his shoes, which tells you volumes about the sad state of my own personal growth. That said, I find it hard to disagree with Liddy's answer when he was asked why he claims to support the U.S. Constitution, and yet he intentionally broke the law on many occasions in the pursuit of his own agenda. Basically, he seemed to say that if you are passionate enough about something, then you shouldn't let a little thing like the law of the land get in your way. And that, my fellow Saloners, seems to pretty well sum up the attitude of the worldwide cannabis and psychedelic communities as well. Too bad he only applied those rules to himself and not to Timothy Leary, who also had taken the exact same approach to what he considered the foolish and inhuman laws prohibiting the use of our sacred medicines. Now, I don't know that I have to comment on it, but like you, I found it quite amazing that... The outrage Leary felt in 1990 about the looting going on by the Bush crime family would be orders of magnitude greater if he were alive today. The savings and loans scandal that he was referring to only looted the U.S. Treasury of around $90 billion, whereas little Bush Jr. and his Wall Street buddies looted the Treasury of over a trillion dollars in 2008. I can hardly wait to see what the next round of looters will raise the stakes to. Of course, there really isn't much room to set new records like that since the GDP of the entire planet is still under 60 trillion. And don't forget, uh, Obama still hasn't put any of these criminals in jail. Mainly I guess because he's uh, focusing mainly on arresting as many medical marijuana patients as he can. Now, as much as I know that I shouldn't do this, I'm going to drag my personal political opinion in here just for a moment to make a point even though I do my darndest to keep politics out of these podcasts. But in the early part of this talk, when Liddy was telling his side of the story about the raids on Leary, didn't he just make your skin crawl with his righteousness? What a creep. Now, flash forward to today and think about the way the current U.S. administration is still pursuing the so-called war on drugs. Not only did Obama lie about leaving medical marijuana patients alone, He's still raiding medical dispensaries, and on top of that he's even threatening local officials with criminal charges if they so much as issue a license to a dispensary under their current state laws. And on the two occasions when Obama gave press conferences where he took questions from the internet, he was overwhelmed with questions about the war on drugs, but he refused to take a single question on that topic, and instead he smirked and made fun of the people asking the questions. The bottom line is that Barack Obama is no friend of anyone who believes that cannabis should be legal. He thinks we're stoner jerks and has no time to even listen to our questions, let alone seriously consider his draconian policy about cannabis, which is even worse than Bush's by the way. So next year when you cast your vote for president, just remember that if you vote for Obama only because he's the lesser of two evils, you're voting for someone who thinks that you and your opinions aren't worth listening to. He is an active drug warrior who sees you as his enemy in this war. And personally, I'd rather not vote at all if it means that my only choice is to vote against my own interests by supporting any of the gutless major candidates. There. Now I feel a lot better. (laughs) And I promise to leave politics out of these podcasts for as long as I can. Now to change back to a more pleasant topic. In the beginning of this talk, we heard Dr. Leary say that at the Millbrook compound that Liddy-rated, they had assembled a team of artists, philosophers, and psychologists. Well, besides Leary himself, one of the other psychologists there was our dear friend Gary Fisher, who you heard in podcasts 15, 97, 98, 156, 200, and 232. And just so that you know, Gary is going to be celebrating his 80th birthday this Sunday, and I'll be there along with Charlie Grobe and dozens of others to celebrate the occasion. So I'll be sure to tell Gary that you and the rest of our fellow saloners will not forget all of the important pioneering work that he did back in the early days of psychedelic research. Well, that's going to do it for now, and so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you once again that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can hear something about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.